Welcome to the OMR Podcast International. I'm your host, Scott Peterson, International Content Editor at OMR. My guests today are Johanna Dalrus and Emma Tracy, co-CEOs and co-founders of Scale, that's S-C-E-A-L, a very cool creative brand agency based in Berlin that focuses on tech companies, helping them, as the name suggests, grow at scale. Furthermore, Scale also assists brands in fine-tuning their brand values, overall brand presence, products, and brand campaigns, including video, podcasts, subtle nudge, and out of home. We had a fun conversation on the current state of branding on Johanna's atypical background, transitioning from a painter in her native Finland to digital designer and now founder. For her part, Emma is a serial entrepreneur, having founded Honeyspot, an IT job platform that Emma sold in 2019 for 57 million euro dollars. We talked about bootstrapping the current startup landscape, marrying a career with family and their client portfolio, including storied Berlin techno club Trezor. All of that and more right now in the Omar podcast. Buzz. All right. Well, I am pleased right now to be joined by Emma Tracy and Johanna Dalros, CEOs and co-founders of Scale. Uh, and Scale is a Berlin-based agency aimed at helping tech companies scale. And it was founded earlier this year in 2023. Welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. We're very excited to be here. Great. So now the two of you, you've collaborated on several projects in the past, and we'll dig into those uh, a bit later. Um, but let's start with Scale. Um, it was founded earlier this year. And uh, what was kind of the the genesis? Sure, yeah. I mean, um, so Johanna and I have actually worked together for a very long time. Um, we have been working together probably for about 10 years now at this stage together. Um, the first thing we worked on was Honeypot, um, which was the two-sided developer marketplace, uh, which I co-founded. Um, and Johanna was the first designer we hired. She was actually only 19 when we hired her, which is crazy, okay. especially given the impact she had. Um, and from that, after that, you know, we both kind of went on to different things, but we always collaborated with each other on different projects. Um, we lived together for some time as well. Um, and we said, okay, one day we're going to start something together and it's going to be creative. It's going to be project based and it's going to be a company that we can really shape in our own vision. Um, and kind of the stars aligned, I guess, towards the end of last year. Um, and in February, we launched the company. Um, and I think it's really driven by this belief that brand is kind of a misunderstood or underutilized part um, of company building, especially in early stage tech companies. Um, and we want to change that. Um, we really want to make it very core to the experience of building uh, tech companies, especially in Europe. Um, so that was that was our motivation. That's how we got started. Okay. Uh, so you you do define yourself as a brand agency then? Um, but you and you're harnessing branding or trying to like get people's awareness for branding, um, you increase their awareness for the importance of branding when it comes to scaling up their business, especially early on. And then why why the focus on tech companies? So we both have been working in tech companies, more or less um, the majority of our um, experience so far. Um, as Emma mentioned, we uh, we met at Honeypot, and this was when we. Um, started our tech career and then we both went to um, both bootstrapped companies uh, after and this is something that we have been like really focusing on and it's where our core experience is as well to just like take early stage startups and just like scale them into like more robust brands so this is why we want to continue working with them 
I also think it's like one of the parts where we can really make most impact uh, with our experience. Okay. Um, and so then how, I'm assuming then there aren't that many branding agencies out there that are focusing on tech companies. So that kind of helps you stand uh, stand out from the crowd in Berlin, especially because there are lots of branding agencies everywhere, even in Hamburg where we're based. Um, so was was that not only like a, a, a conscious decision because of the impact you could have, but also because it would help you kind of scale up your growth? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely a differentiator, I think, that we are focused on tech. And I think even more niche than that, our core expertise is probably from um, seed right up to series A. So that really um, important strategic time of growth and defining who you are and what you're doing, finding product market fit, finding brand market fit as well. Um, so yeah, I think it really helps differentiate us. Um, and like Johanna said, obviously it's our core experience and what we love, you know, <laughs> we're building sure. a company <laughs> where we we want to love what we're doing and this is the most exciting thing yeah. for us. Okay. Um, and how many how many people are on the team? Is it just the two of you? We actually we had our first hire very recently. Um, we have a videographer, Carl Cormack, mm-hmm. that is now supporting us also on our uh, rollout part because we do believe a lot in video. Um, communication as storytelling um so he has now joined us as well okay well good um then uh how many like can you tell me something about some of the clients you've been working with uh, at scale and some of the commonalities maybe uh, among the projects uh, the companies that you're working with yeah so we can't mention all of our clients but i think a couple of good names that we have been working with is Vumi. uh it's a climate tech company that enables farmers to improve soil health we also work with Unia, it's a SaaS um, company that focuses on retail media. Uh, we recently worked with Career Foundry. It's Europe's most established online um, career academy. Um, Codacy is a quality um, platform based in Lisbon. And I also think what's really what we really believe in is to give back to um, companies or communities that don't um, necessarily have a the capacity to take on a branding agency. So we also work on pro bono projects a lot. So the latest ones um, is uh, Lilypad. Um, Manara is um, also one that is like based in Middle um, middle Eastern uh, parts. And also um, recently we did Tresor documentary um, for the club in Berlin. And um, kind of following up on the commonalities question, um, I think the thing that we that unites all of these projects is the fact that we're coming in and building the stories. Um, so I think that's you know a fundamental misunderstanding about brand. The first thing people think about when they think about brand is you know pretty colors, nice font, the visual element. But actually, brand is all about how you can communicate your strategy to your consumers. So how can you build your differentiation? Um, and how can you make consumers recognize you for what you want to be recognized for? Um, and that's the commonality. So we come in and build solid stories uh, for companies, both verbally and visually. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so in order to do that, how much of an expert do the two of you need to be uh, to become uh, when it comes to, you know, doing these projects justice and kind of trying to, I mean, obviously there's a lot of steps involved, but um, how, what are the challenges when it comes to, um, you know, taking on a lily pad, which is, um, you know, kind of a, for you know, a reductive or a, 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 um, a simpler um, 
um, what am I looking for? Description is an education pl platform. Then you have Manara, which is you know an education platform for a very specific female um, tech um, um, talents in the Middle East and North Africa, and then also a soil company. So these are completely different uh, companies, companies in, uh, acting in completely different sectors. So how do you go about internalizing the information you're getting from them and then um, turning it into something that is viable that's going to help them grow? Yeah, I think that, that like the founders we work with, what we tell them is you are the expert in your area. We are the experts in taking your area and, and your vision and communicating that verbally and visually. Um, so we do spend a lot of time. Um, the first step we do is um, in-depth interviews. Um, so we spend a huge amount of time with the founders or the stakeholders and we talk through their vision, what it where they are in their industry, what they're trying to be, and when we translate that. Um, and that's what we do. That's our core expertise. And we make sure founders know that their core expertise is what they're doing and and we, we help them just build that up. Sure. But when it comes to storytelling, then um, you're taking a little bit more of an active approach. Um, and as somebody who's got a little bit of a copywriting background, I know that that can be, depending on the client. A very good process or occasionally a very um, trying process. <laughs> For sure, yeah. I mean, probably a good example is um, the project we did with Rumi. Um, so this is a soil health uh, company. Um, and obviously coming in, we didn't have a huge amount of knowledge about, um, you know, how carbon credit systems work and um, what regenerative agriculture is, um, how one improves soil health and why that matters for climate change. Um, but through the conversations we're able to have with the founders and then obviously the secondary research that we do, um, we, are, we do build up quite a good picture um, of what these companies are doing. Um, I think my background as a journalist also means that I am used to this, um, kind of going mm -hmm. into complex topics and extracting the threads of the story and building it into a singular narrative. And then Johanna comes in and she figures, how do we... Um, how do we build that narrative into a visual experience? Um, it's part of the, the the thing we love, actually. We love kind of, okay, what the hell, like soil health? Like, what does this have to do with anything? What do we have to come in and, and learn? Um, and I think that's the positive as well, right? Because like you have to assume that the person interacting with your brand comes from zero knowledge as well. So having someone who has zero knowledge about that area, translating it for your audience um, can actually be a huge, huge benefit, I think. Okay. Um, so how, how are your two roles kind of different from each other and how do they complement each other? We, so Emma is an excellent communicator. She, she's taking care of just like Ashley mentioned, she can take these very complicated and complex uh, topics and turn them into very straightforward narratives. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm more the visual person because I've been uh, doing visual identities now and product design for a decade. So we do complement each other very well in these cases because um, we have very clear uh, paths. Okay. And I guess like um, if talking about roles specifically, um, Johanna's the creative director and I'm the CEO. Okay. Uh, and and uh, Johanna, your background as well is, is um, not really a design background. I mean, it's kind of been the learning on the job because you had a completely different vocational training before you joined Honeypot, right? Right. So I actually started as a construction painter. <laughs> That's my background, and um, but I was always into graphic design. Um, I joined this youth organization in Finland that needed support with graphic design, and this is where I got introduced to the whole part of it. And um, 
from there on, I just like learned that I could actually uh, work in the field of design. So I started on the side of my painting career, going to just like learning uh, more in-depth graphic design. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Berlin and I got my first job as a graphic designer at Honeypot. And this is also when I then got introduced to product design. So it really was like for each step I learned more, I got more interested in it and I wanted to become better at it. And I just gradually became more and more um, aware of what you actually can do as a designer. Sure. Do you think, um, like, were you surprised um, at a a lack or maybe more overlap that was between being a painter and being a graphic design? Um, Because, I mean, at the end, both professions are dealing with a visual medium um maybe an analogy is being a professional musician but changing instruments so you kind of know what the goal is what it's supposed to sound like but like the the tools that you actually need to 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 do that are completely different so i'm just kind of wondering like what was the the learning curve like for you and like where was the overlap and like what was just completely new for you i think a lot of things were new <laughs> it's di- still very different cuz i I was my my dad was a um is working in wood interior so mm-hmm. I was always very like hands on as a young person so I knew I wanted to do something with building which for me I also was a creative person I love taking photography so I was just like okay let's go into painting because it it combines them both mm-hmm. but then um taking over to graphic design of course it's like you learn about color combinations you learn about all of these aesthetics um but the tools you use are very different because one is digital and one is actually uh, on walls or ceilings um i think you can still take a lot of things just from like combining them on visual thinking but then they're genuinely very different (laughs) sure Completely different ball games, as it were. Um, well, then, uh, so then you came uh, to you left Finland, correct? Uh, in 2015, when you were 19, and you joined Honeypot, um, which, uh, uh, as we've established, that was your company before. Uh, Emma, um, so I'm just curious, what were kind of like your first impressions of each other? Like you joined Honeypot, which was a pretty small team. Emma, you hired uh, an inexperienced graphic designer to be a graphic designer, um, so. There had to have been something going on. Um, I mean, it was funny because we were looking for a graphic designer for quite a while, actually. Um, and we interviewed Johanna and had a good feeling um, about her, but we had a good feeling about another graphic designer. So we said, OK, let's um, have them both do a trial week with us and then kind of see. And during that trial week, I was like, oh, my God, this girl is so quiet. <laughs> and I, ca- I said to my colleagues, like, please, like, talk to her, you know, go for lunch, have a drink with her, um, get her out of her shell. Um, and that's so funny with hindsight, you know, because like okay. in the end, Johanna actually was one of the cultural foundations of the company and she was the one organizing the parties and like getting people out rock climbing and doing all of this kind of stuff. Um, and I could see, you know, aside from the, the this great personality, I could see this very core um, talent that was there. Um, Obviously, we didn't have enough money. Uh, enough, <laughs> yeah, enough is the better word. But we didn't have a lot of money, and we were always bootstrapped, and um, and so we couldn't hire a super super experienced person. But I could see that Johanna, in her 
um, designs had such potential and she did have such potential so much so that like a lot of what the product looks like today is really something that started with Johanna's, uh, Johanna's inspiration and Johanna's vision. Um, so yeah, my impression first, talented designer, very quiet. I was right on talented designer. I was very wrong on quiet person. <laughs> Still waters run deep. <laughs> Very good. Um, but uh, so maybe just a little bit of context for the people out there who don't know uh, Honeypot, um, which uh, where you both worked and which was your company before um, you it was acquired uh, by Zing, which is now new work in 2019 um, for a very, very healthy sum uh, around 50 million. Um, was in, or it still is, a job uh, platform focused on IT specialists. That's a theme here. Um, and it is now the largest of its kind in Europe. Um, and it was pretty unique in the way that it approached the hiring process, which because it kind of ushered in a, a paradigm shift um, as far as um, companies were then actively headhunting IT professionals. Um, I also provided transparency in in salaries, uh, typical salaries that people could expect for those positions. Um, also, uh, had a, a consulting or an an advice capacity as well, like as far as people are, like submitting CVs. Um, so, I'm just curious, like, um, what do you think uh, was it about that uh, honeypot that made it so successful that within four years of its founding, you had this massive exit? I mean, it's convenient to say now, but I really do think it's brand. <laughs> um, I think we had a very, very clear brand focus, and that was um, developer first. So, you know, we were a two-sided marketplace, and we could have taken recruiter first or developer first um, perspective, but everything we did was developer first. Um, and because my background was pure in journalism, um, we focused on building um, organic channels. So we had an incredible team across across the board from from the start and that's one of the keys to the success um, and one, the, one of the things the incredible team did was to really build up like this community um, so we launched um, developer focused documentaries you can check out our Honeypot's YouTube channel there's up to 2, two million views on some, some of the documentaries uh, we launched events um, with up to 800 people focused on niche technologies and um, and yeah, so I think this really, really strong brand focus on developers was the thing that made us successful in the end, because, you know, what Johanna and I talk about a lot is that brand um, is actually measurable. Um, and for us at Honeypot, we were able to do a very clear comparison on the CAC, so uh, acquisition costs between ourselves and our competitors. And it was like... Uh, a very, very large difference. Um, and that was because such a strong proportion of our traffic um, was coming from brand channels. Um, and this is where Johanna and I kind of saw the power of brand in terms of not just this visual thing, but really a strategic decision for long-term healthy growth and not the need for constant injections of cash in order to fund performance marketing costs. Um, what are some other ways that you can actually measure brand? So you mentioned the customer acquisition costs. Yeah. But I'm just curious because that's a very kind of intangible thing that you're making very tangible and quantifiable. Yeah. I think uh, retention is also a great way um, to measure brand. So like how easily are you able to retain customers? Um, because customers are more likely to come back to you when they have a strong connection to, to your brand. Um, there's also more complex ways such as brand recognition. And um, this is through surveys and things like that. So how do people identify you um, and whatnot? Um, but I think, yeah, in terms of customer acquisition cost, um, the the difference between your your CACs basically and your closest competitors 
you have to kind of look at the specific things in that um, and retention are the best. I think when you're talking about um, specific consumer products, then you can look at um, like ability to or willingness to pay higher prices. So if you compare like a Hermes bag to a well-made leather bag, um, the difference, you know, is between 8,000 euro, let's say, between a Hermes bag and a leather bag, that price difference is the brand as well. Um, so there's actually so many ways to measure brand, which are really not well understood, I think, um, and definitely something I think interesting for early stage um, companies to think about. And it's a potential to start a brand, yeah. a brand new endeavor, as we are establishing. Sure. But um, so um, with uh, with Honeypot, like, uh, what was like maybe for for both of you, like uh, some of the biggest I don't know takeaways or challenges or even failures that you had there that are still kind of like uh, impacting and influencing the way you uh, approach what you're doing at scale. Yeah, so I think because for me it was like the first transition period when I really just like went into tech. Um, it really something that is still really core to what I believe in is it's just like the importance of empowering people. Mm-hmm. As I must mentioned, it's just like around ninety percent of the people in the beginning was had very little experience, but because the culture was so like supporting and pragmatic, uh, we were able to still develop this like really functional product and a core brand so i think that's really something i still believe in yeah and um i think for me um on the plus or let's say the minus side first (laughs) um so i think a mistake that we made so um i think it was incredible that we empowered so many junior people um from the very early get-go i think we missed um an inflection point where we did need to bring in more seniority, seniority, um, in particular in tech. Um, so I think we made mistakes in how fast we scaled our tech team without setting up the leadership structure in the correct way at the correct time. Um, and that impacted people on the team. And that still sits with me today as um, a personal failure and, and something that I hope I'll, I won't, I won't make that same mistake again. Um, on the um, on the positive side, yeah, I think um, it's again this kind of ability to build um, a company by bootstrapping. Um, I mean, it's really on vogue now, um, which is a great thing to see because it brings back the fundamentals of of business building. Um, uh, but at the time, it was really like uh, seen as almost a failure <laughs> that we didn't have VC funding, um, uh, despite the fact that we had f- fundamentally a good business. Um, so I am proud of of what we did with so little and the fact that we re- managed to reach a great exit in such a short amount of time um, by building in that way. Is there any second set of circumstances or situation where you could imagine not being bootstrapped? Um, yes, definitely. I think that um, if we founded a, a scalable tech company um, in which we had found um, a lever for growth, which required an injection of capital and was not possible without it, um, and that would lead us to a certain goal, then yeah, I think that's the perfect time for VC. And, and VC has a great place um, in certain business models. I think it's over-applied, unfortunately, VC. Um, but in the cases where it works, it really, really, really works. Um, and it, it's just understanding, I think, where it works and where it doesn't. Okay. Um, speaking of like what works and like misunderstanding and stuff, we kind of touched on it a bit ago uh, as far as people don't understand like the ways that um, brands can actually or brand can impact a company. Um, what 
um, what do you think is like, uh, like some effect, what are some effective like marketing strategies today or like maybe some mistakes that you're noticing like, uh, among like, um, seed and series A companies? I guess it's a, a lot around, um, kind of a dismissiveness of brand. Um, and I think that comes from the, the place where, um, this kind of common phrase of if it's not measurable, it's not happening. Um, so there's a couple of misconceptions there, right? Because brand actually is measurable. Um, so that's the first misconception. Um, and then, you know, there's this interesting statistic, which we quite often talk about, um, which Harvard Business Review is talking about a lot at the moment as well. And that's the fact that 90% of consumer decision making processes are based on emotions such as love, hate, respect, etc. So it seems crazy to not work on controlling how you are emotionally perceived as a company when 90% of the decisions are made in that way. So I think like figuring out like how do you want to be perceived um, and then working to build that as a foundation to everything else you will do. Um, and also thinking about performance marketing and brands symbiotically, not as counter um, counter choices. They should be they should be working in parallel. So I want to kind of circle back to um, some of the other projects that you said you were working on, um, at least in the the context of these being um, nonprofit organizations. Um, because after you um, joined uh, Honeypot in 2015, Joanna, you stayed there for two years, went to Daimler, and if I'm not mistaken, you didn't really leave on the best of terms. Um, uh, and but so then the two of you kind of kept like working together on different projects, um, but they were nonprofit projects. But that doesn't mean that they aren't run like businesses. That doesn't mean that there's not like a significant time invest on your side of things. Um, and so as the two of you are kind of, you know, on, not kind of, you're entrepreneurials, you're founder types, um, isn't everything supposed to be kind of like perceived in terms of ROI and, and time spent? And if so, like, is there a way to... Um, to like qualify and quantify time without putting it in a financial context? Yeah, I mean, very interesting <laughs> question. Um, I also don't see everything as return of investment. It's just like the nonprofit projects that we worked on, we really actually care about. Um, so if we see them becoming successful with our help, it's already a win from my side. And I think this is also for each project we work on, we still learn. We still learn for every, um, we learn how to do a better process. We learn how to do better uh, strategical thinking. Um, so I still see it as a learning. So the return of investment is more in what we learn than financially. Sure. I was just kind of like, I had a, a, a guest uh, on uh, last year on the podcast, um, a guy named uh uh, Mohammed Yunus, who um, was kind of made his name for like uh, micro lending and micro banking and stuff, and like the whole concept of like social business and whatnot, and just like these massive projects are run like regular businesses. So you have to invest the same amount of time, you have to put in the same amount of effort, um, but then just like the 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 payoff is just completely different. And a lot of times there's a disconnect between that and like the either the organizations that they're working for or the people that are running them. And so I just find it a fascinating concept um, because as me, somebody who's not an entrepreneur, who talks to entrepreneurs, it, it's not always only about the money, but there's definitely like some type of 
uh, of payoff at some point. And uh, at least it seems like in in looking at your CVs, um, it's more about like seeing the the impact um, that your efforts are having on people that would otherwise be overlooked. I, yeah, I think it's that. I, I do think there is um, kind of a payoff that's it's not necessarily the motivator um, in the sense that it also allows us to do to show what we can do sometimes, you know, so for example, um, the project with Trezor, this documentary we made for Resident Advisor, which was also um, completely pro bono, allowed us to show that we can make, you know, a um, feature length documentary um, that reaches 100,000 views um, within a month. Um, so, you know, other people who are looking at us as an agency get to see kind of the range of things which we are able to do. Um, I actually think that one of the best pieces of career advice um, it, you can get sometimes is invest time in the unknown um, because you don't know what you will get out of it um, in the end. And But usually you will get something out of it um, and usually it's positive. But you have to be willing to take that kind of risk and that chance um, of just the unknown. Sure, to expose yourself to discomfort yeah. or to like, out, like to put yourself in a discomfort zone, so to speak. Exactly. So one of the, uh, I think, underlying themes in Everything that we've talked to, um, from Honeypot to Monera to uh, Lilypad to Trezor, um, and uh, also to Scale, is kind of I think empowerment um, and catering to to people that are otherwise kind of overlooked um, or maybe just not really accounted for. And um, where I'm going with this is uh, one of the things that I think is very kind of uh, I. I it seems to me that it's very uh, on the fore uh, of all of your motivations, which is uh, gender equity and establishing that and kind of breaking up the boys club that is dominating um, at least uh, businesses uh, in in Germany and the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and Joanna, from in Finland, it's not really the case like that, is it? Um, it is very much kind of gender parity um, and. I mean, you talked about earlier, like you used to work at a, at a construction company. And if I'm not mistaken, your boss was also a woman, correct? Correct. Yeah, actually, I don't fully understand the concept still because I really grew up in an environment with a lot of strong role mo- uh, female role models. As you mentioned, when I was a construction worker, the boss was uh, female. Also, my mom, is. Um, she also went from just like uh, a regular sales position and now she's head of brand for a very big company in Finland so it's just like I grew up in this like environment that it's just like you can do it if you want to um because I just saw so many people do it um and it's a bit the same with Emma Emma's mom is also very entrepreneurial so we both come from this background of um not really knowing that this exists so i think it's a very hard one to for us to answer um or at least from my perspective yeah i mean it's a complete culture shock then for you it's something that was completely normal and all of a sudden you're faced with this thing and it's like what i've seen that this can work like this is just yeah like you you actually have to like see it and be confronted with this for it to even become an issue because before it's like a completely non-issue totally and i just think it's just um I, I don't know. It's Of course, it's like um, there's an issue, but I don't know how to solve it. Um, I think the more we encourage people 
the better it will get. And how do you see this, Emma, uh, playing out? Um, because, I mean, as somebody who comes from a family where gender is no hurdle, um, surrounding yourself with people um, who don't see things and view things in terms like that, like what is like preventing uh, this breakup of the boys club? You know, Johanna and I actually have discussed this quite a, a bit. Um, not necessarily this idea of the how to break up the boys club, but, um, you know, how do we, what's our role in encouraging more women into leadership positions or founding roles? Um, and as Johanna said, it's just very hard for us to kind of come up with concrete ways of that happening because of the way that we grew up. We don't know a different system. We just know that this is possible. It is possible for women to do the same as men. It is possible for men to do the same as women. And um, so I kind of, yeah, we don't have a clear answer yet on that. Um we just we just feel like the best thing we can do is just keep doing what we're doing and hopefully it shows that it's possible and it gives other women some encouragement that um that you you can be a leader if you want to be and you can find a company if you want to be um and equally same for men like you know <laughs> also like on the whole topic of just self-confidence in general it affects both genders i think um and yeah sure um, but uh, then uh, maybe then just pivot back and like take a little closer look at scale. Like, what are some things that are um, that that y'all are doing there that are maybe um, or have seen and maybe implemented at Honeypot and just like throughout like your time like collaborating together that maybe um, you've heard people comment on uh, like, oh well, I've never seen that before, or um, maybe you've not seen other places. Um, just these kind of like small concrete steps that you're kind of taking because you just seem that they are, you deem them to be correct. Um, it, Kai and I also, Kai is my former co-founder at Honeypot. We also used to get this question a lot. <laughs> we always, I feel like never provided <laughs> us uh, very good answers because the thing was that we had such a firm belief that this is normal. You know, this is just normal. Like, so we didn't, we didn't need to set up like a DEI council or initiatives or whatever. We had a very um, multi-background company and, you know, and that's everything from gender, educational background, class background, um, race background, um, sexual orientation background. Um, personally, I actually sometimes find like some modern DEI initiatives a bit shallow, almost like this is our you know, our mantelpiece of, um, of diversity, um, all, all, it's all window dressing, yeah, but there's no a bit substance. of window dressing. And, and it, that worries me really, it worries me. Um, because all I can say is that I know, um, I know that it's normal <laughs> and I'm waiting for the day when it's a non-topic, um, because it is normal and it is normal that people from different backgrounds can do things which have been more traditionally associated, um, with one particular demographic. How do you see the, the future, uh, for scale kind of unfolding? Yeah. So, um, no VC, no, um, cause we want to be independent. Um, and also we're not really a VC case, um, but we are. We want to continue working with amazing clients, especially we've because we have gotten um, a lot of or like 
a couple of our clients now are in the sustainability uh, space. So we're thinking maybe that that would be a very nice um, um, path to follow because um, we do believe in the impact um, that they can. Oh, sorry, I have to take this again. <laughs> so um, we want to continue working with um, amazing clients um, especially interested in the sustainability space. Um, and we also want to have scale as a cash generating business to fund development in other um, business um, for other business ideas, especially because we're very interested in like what the AI section can do at the moment. So if we can leverage scale as a business to fund other projects, um, it's just like something that we've been discussing a lot. We will continue going down the bootstrap path because uh, we believe in the independence. Um, we are already international, but we definitely want to expand a bit more. We've been talking about expanding to Middle East because it's a very interesting um, area and it's like a lot of development going on at the moment. Um, and of course, there's always Scandinavia and Ireland <laughs> that we can go into. Back to the roots. Yeah, on, on, on one of those points, I think we'd love to be um, an example of kind of like a bootstrap company in the sense of building up scale as a, the core of kind of a universe of, of, of companies. So where scale becomes this primary cash generating business where we're really helping clients um, execute on their visions. And then at the same time, we're investing into AI based um, new business ideas that are adjacent to what we're doing, um, which we can then also kind of prototype in the work that we're doing and help companies to build out more rapidly their, their brand. And um, so that's kind of our big vision. All right. Well, then, uh, all the best to both of you. Then, uh, as you uh, work on realizing your vision, thank you very much, Emma Trace and Johanna Dalros, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Buzz. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else out there in between and beyond, that's our show. A big thank you to my guests, Johanna and Emma from Scale, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe. A little click goes a long way. Until next time, swim with a buddy. <laughs>